the Russian invasion of Ukraine has made the world far more dangerous, not only in the short run, but in ways that may be irreversible in just a number of ways. It's a uh, tragic and criminal attack, but actually in terms of criminality, that is violation of our obligations under the UN Charter, it is an aggressive war and not the first. Uh, in fact, it's like the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, like the American invasion of Iraq in 2003, or even the Afghanistan earlier than that, which persisted for 20 years. All of these were, including the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine now, have been criminal, murderous, stupid, unsuccessful, and dangerous wars. So we're seeing here humanity at its almost worst. Not quite the worst, fortunately. And to go over this whole period of what we've been talking about, we haven't seen the worst. We've avoided the worst. And I say we, I'll give credit even to the leaders at their, at their near worst. We haven't seen nuclear war. And really that was unexpected. When I was in my teens, in the 40s, or the 50s or early 60s, I think almost nobody that I knew expected that we would go 70 years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki without another explosion on humans. And that could well have happened. We've been very close to it, discreditably close to it. And yet uh, something happened that uh, was not easily foreseeable then. Each of the superpowers, US and Russia, allowed themselves to be stalemated or defeated uh, without reverting to nuclear weapons. I think almost nobody really foresaw that possibility. And of course, it's a possibility now, but there is this difference. In each of those cases, there was a stalemate confronting uh, such a smaller power, uh, whether it was Korea uh, or Indochina, Vietnam, Laos, uh, or uh, the Russians in Afghanistan, even though their opponents were supplied by the nuclear super superpower, by their adversary superpowers, uh, and it was something of a proxy war, nevertheless, we were able to accept uh, really defeat in Vietnam, defeat in Afghanistan, without using nuclear weapons, although they were considered at various points. Uh, something of a, essentially a defeat in Iraq, politically speaking, the Russians in Afghanistan, and so forth. So that could persist unless we know the history of that period and know how close actually there was consideration of escalating to nuclear war. That is currently uh, a more imminent possibility than the world has seen since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, uh, 60 years ago. Actually, there was a very close, uh, and for similar reasons, uh, possibility of nuclear war in 1983, 20 years later, that most of the people don't know of, but it's a time when the Russians, the Soviets then, uh, felt under possible imminent attack and uh, were preparing very dangerously, foolishly, but as we would have done in similar circumstances for a preemptive attack 
against the United States, and there were false alarms during that crisis that could well have triggered it, with, except for the prudence of individuals in the system, so that the world hung on the uh, somewhat dangerous, uh, in career terms, uh, decisions by people like uh, Arkhipov in the Cuban Missile Crisis and Colonel Petrov in the 1983 crisis, not to alarm their uh, superiors with their own belief that there might well be an imminent attack. That could occur in the current crisis and in various ways. For example, uh, if uh, the Ukrainians were to use the missile systems that we're now giving them, which have the capability of replying to Russian attacks on Ukrainian soil with Ukrainian attacks on Russian soil, that would be a severe escalation, possibly out of our control. That happened again if a possible defeat in the Donbas uh, of Russian forces caused Putin and or his commanders or conceivably subordinates to attack supply points in Poland, thus implicating NATO directly in this. Uh, we would get into a NATO-US war which has so far been avoided. I'm saying that each power here, Biden on the one hand and Putin on the other, uh, have, as in the past, refrained from acts that would bring us into direct armed conflict together, uh, have shown a kind of prudence that we've seen before, and yet uh, they're gambling with a clear-cut risk by what they're doing and the other side is doing by the interaction of getting into something that has not happened in the 70 years, and that is totally so far new, and that is the imminent possibility of armed conflict between the U.S. or NATO and Russia or the Soviet Union earlier. Amazingly, in these 70 years, you might say, uh, each side has taken care, even in a proxy war, uh, in each case against some asymmetric, uh, against some weaker power, has taken care to avoid direct armed conflict between the two. So something we have not seen yet tested is the willingness of a superpower leader to lose or be defeated or stalemated, I should say, by the other superpower. Because that involves a loss of prestige and a loss of influence in the world that has not occurred in these earlier wars. For the U.S. to withdraw from Vietnam or Afghanistan uh, is understood by others as not directly uh, impinging on their ability to be a great power or a superpower in the world. To lose directly to Russia or Russia to the U.S. is another matter, and that hasn't happened. It could easily come about now. So that's the gamble that's being taken by both sides at this point. Just as both sides were gambling in the Cuban Missile Crisis, in which I was involved at a high staff level, they were gambling uh, that they would not go against their instincts not to get into armed conflict. I believe that both Khrushchev and Kennedy, I, I believe this after 50 years of study, after uh, I had actually participated in that crisis, that neither of them, in fact, intended to carry out their threats of armed conflict, uh, that they were both bluffing, but that each of them was, was taking moves and deployments and threats and commitments to improve the terms of a negotiated settlement, which they ex each of them expected 
to end with of some kind. In the course of that sparring, that deploying for better, better terms, they came within a hair's breadth of subordinates leading into directly armed conflict of American destroyers causing a Soviet submarine to use a nuclear torpedo, which we didn't, and the destroyers didn't even know they had. Uh, a Soviet uh, general in Cuba, uh, without the permission of Khrushchev, shooting down a U-2, the one time, by the way, in 70 years, when overtly uh, an American or Soviet was actually killed by the other side. That was Major Anderson on Saturday morning, October 27th, uh, when I was uh, in the Pentagon. So we've been that close, and in part because of the actions of subordinates or allies that were not under the control of the leaders, uh, we came very close to blowing up not just the Northern Hemisphere, which our Joint Chiefs already estimated as the effect of our, uh, of our initiating nuclear war or responding to a single uh, attack. But in fact, we now know for the last 30 years would have led to a smoke pall in the stratosphere from burning cities, from soot from burning cities that would have cut out most sunlight and killed nearly all humans on Earth by starvation. In other words, we wouldn't be here if uh, Vasily Arkhipov had not overridden the decision of uh, Soviet subcommander to launch his nuclear torpedo, and again in Petrov. Now, right now, it's not only the risk of nuclear war that we're seeing. The Russian action here, which was hardly foreseen by anyone outside the administration, which was thought uh, to be exaggerating the situation wrongly by many people outside. Uh, that Russian has destroyed uh, attack against their Budapest uh, agreements uh, to, to uh, respect the sovereignty of, um, uh, of uh, Ukraine if it gave up its nuclear weapons to Russia. It was already um, violated by taking Crimea, but those were in circumstances quite different from the present. This has destroyed, I think, the kind of trust, not only in the U.S., but quite widely, that could possibly lead to something like the Treaty for the Prevention of Nuclear War, the Elimination of Nuclear Weapons, or Article 6 of the Non-Proliferation Treaty of Good Faith Negotiations Toward Elimination of Nuclear Weapons. The U.S. and other nuclear states have violated that in spirit and in action for half a century. And yet there was always the possibility, uh, in, in part by this treaty, so-called TPNW, Treaty for the Prevention of Nuclear War, the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, pardon me, the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, there was possibility, many nations have signed that, that uh, even the U.S. could sign it. I have not, I've been skeptical of that for reasons we could go into. I think the idea of nuclear states signing that now is essentially dead. But more than that, I think Article 6 is pretty dead, uh, and the Non-Proliferation Treaty itself. Ironically, in this situation, even if nuclear weapons don't go off, the evident use of these weapons by threatening them and by preparations, especially in this case on the Russian side, I think will uh, urge other countries 
to acquire their own deterrent forces and their own ability to exert their own influence outside their borders. Uh, I think proliferation now is very likely. It's been predicted before, and we've avoided it. As I say, the worst has been avoided. But I think the worst is now upon us, not certainly, and we can work against that, and struggle against that. But I think, in fact, we have an era of uh, nuclear proliferation. If the Russians are led to use a nuclear weapon, it probably would be in the way that NATO always expected to use it in the case of a Soviet attack on West Europe. And that is not immediately by an all-out use of strategic weapons or at all, or even an all-out use, large use of tactical nuclear weapons. The NATO planning in case of a uh, new blockade of Berlin that uh, got us into an armed conflict uh, was always to fire demonstration shots first or warning shots. In other words, the, so the alleged Russian doctrine of escalating to de-escalate, to stop the conflict, is not a Russian invention. It was always the NATO idea. And after all, what else could it be? A large-scale use of tactical nuclear weapons has always, in Europe, has always been understood to lead to the annihilation of Europe, East and West, and probably to an all-out war. So uh, the countries then that have relied on the so-called nuclear umbrella have always contemplated that first you'll try to get the other side to back off if conventional means are not adequate for that. And uh, even France, in its own independent force to frop, has uh, first thought not of hitting Moscow, that comes next, but uh, for the French, but of a warning shot, a demonstration shot, to get the other side to realize the seriousness of the situation, the willingness of the uh, launching side to take risks, to accept risks, and to draw back, at the, at the very least, to negotiate uh, in a way that they had not been willing earlier, and uh, possibly to win, to, to accept the other side's terms. That's not impossible, though it's likely, uh, to, uh, to happen. To have, in other words, a, a successful effect as an alternative to a decisive failure. And for that reason, by the way, it's extremely important, in my opinion, and others, not to confront Putin and the Russians with the kind of military victory which a number of high-level members of the Biden administration have said is necessary. Nancy Pelosi in the House has said victory is essential, not defining exactly what that means, but uh, it doesn't seem to uh, encompass the kind of negotiated solution which is, uh, if is mo least unlikely or most likely, which would not be really satisfactory to either side, but would be tolerable by both sides, hard for either to call victory. And uh, for uh, Biden to have said, and now repudiating it in, in words to some extent, but to have said that regime change is necessary, that Putin must not be allowed to serve, um, or that the war must go on as Secretary of Defense Austin has said, uh, to weaken Russia until it can't uh, invade other countries the way uh, it has invaded Ukraine. Can't invade Moldova or Georgia, which are actually the, the uh, most likely other targets on this. That's absurd. 
uh, it, it, that would not be achieved in a hundred years. So they are both talking about very long wars. And as this war goes on, uh, the possibility of escalation then continues, even grows, to avoid escalation or uh, avoid, pardon me, to avoid stalemate, a costly stalemate and, uh, and escalation. So the uh, chance of a negotiated outcome to this, which I think is ideally would happen as soon as possible, or at least within the next several months, and I'll come back to that, is very important, but it's not likely. As I say, the, the arguments I'm arguing against are, are at the very top of our uh, leadership. And uh, Putin has said similar things, as has Zelensky, uh, changing an earlier position in which he allowed the possibility of, of a negotiated outcome which would give up some sovereignty over the Donbass and over for at least a long period of years, Crimea, along with neutrality and a, and a willingness not to have any American bases or foreign bases on its soil. Earlier he expressed uh, an interest in that and then has switched that in recent times and is now talking about what, what amounts to a determination to fight on until Russian soldiers have left the Donbas, the eastern Ukraine, where they've been for eight years, and Crimea, uh, where they, which they have annexed, and which they, uh, it's extremely unlikely that they will give up control of that. So we're talking about a long war in which Ukrainian lives are destroyed enormously. Hundreds of thousands more casualties uh, on the Ukrainian side, as well as comparably on the Russian side. Now, a basic, terrific problem here in confronting this, this tragic situation for Ukraine, and for that matter, for the Russian people with the sanctions, and the rest of the world in terms of food supplies from Ukraine, which, which confronts people in Africa right now uh, with a, a threat of famine and starvation uh, as this goes on. A real obstacle to that is that the there are definite benefits and preferences in favor of a long war on both sides. The fact is that a stalemated war and even a lost war, as in Vietnam or Afghanistan or significantly Iraq, has been, is very profitable for the people who provide arms. And they are not marginal corporations here. These are quite influential uh, corporations on our side and very possibly comparably on the Russian side. Uh, as well. But here, Raytheon, Lockheed, Boeing, Northrop Grumman making the new ICBMs and uh, General Dynamics are profiting hugely. Their stock has gone up and reasonably so. Uh, if you have no scruples as to what you're investing in, Lockheed is a very uh, good investment at this point because, uh, and Raytheon, supplying the stingers and the javelins and many of the other uh, weapons of war here. I think from their point of view, this war can't last uh, too long. Quite fine with them for it to go on indefinitely. And from the US government point of view, this Russian aggression has resuscitated uh, NATO 
which is Cosa Nostra, our thing, for the uh, American protectorate there, the protection racket that we have run in NATO for a long time. Uh, it has resuscitated the U.S. role in Europe, uh, dominance, even enlarged NATO, uh, and as I say, created a uh, Cold War atmosphere in which U.S. leadership, even in Asia, is now greatly enhanced. And uh, that, again, can't go on too long. On the Russian side, we're running into a very common, and this applies to the U.S. as well, but more to the Russian side, the chance of an actual prestigious loss, a humiliating loss, is what, uh, is what confronts Putin right now. And all our history, which I've been analyzing as best I could in uh, the last half century, having participated in some of the worst aspects of it before that, tells me that rather than suffer that humiliating cost, a leader in a position of Putin is willing to raise the ante, escalate, back up previous failures, double down in ways that are uh, without consideration of the humans, like the Ukrainians in this case, Afghans, in the case both of the Soviet invasion and the U.S. invasion and elsewhere, with very little consideration of them, just doesn't come in. I've said that the Russian aggression and the understandable and uh, supportable, I would support, resistance to that in the way of arms aid uh, and position without direct conflict by the U.S. Uh, has some very serious impact on proliferation, on uh, money, on starvation right now. The worst of all, I think, is the destruction of the possibility of the kind of collaboration, cooperation, common security that's between the U.S., China, India, Russia, that is essential for dealing with the great existential problem facing civilization now, the climate catastrophe that's looming before us. Let me be very specific. This war in the last few months, I think, has ruled out the possibility of keeping a ceiling on global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. That was the goal of past global summits on this subject, supposedly 1.5, then elevated possibly to two, each of which represented very bad uh, uh, degradations of the world environment for humans. That's going to happen now. I think the possibility, I'm just, that's my best judgment as I've well tried to inform myself on this. The kind of cooperation we need with China specifically, uh, the two greatest emitters now in the world, the U.S. and China, uh, seems extremely unlikely. If somehow that could change, China could change its relation to Russia on this, uh, that would be very good. But that is not the way events are going. And uh, without that collaboration uh, climate, the world is going to get hotter in ways of uh, producing floods, hurricanes, rising sea levels, uh, toxicity in the ocean, uh, of disastrous effects for civilization. Not extinction, just a world much less favorable to human uh, existence. 
And that, I think, is uh, going to be very hard to change. Uh, that's a, that's a, a catastrophe right now. It's tragic, as I see. Um, finally, the prospects for simply continuing at this level, even without escalation, this high level, I think make that the most likely course of events uh, that I see coming up, and disastrously so. All experience of the past that I've studied and participated in says that men in power, and it's usually men, occasionally women, it applies to them too, if they're in power, will risk and even sacrifice almost any number of humans to avoid a short run, almost certain disaster for them personally and, and uh, a setback a defeat, a humiliation, which would l cause them to lose office and to lose power and whatnot. And rather than do that, uh, their incentives are to uh, pursue possibilities of avoiding that, of staying in office, of avoiding the defeat at the cost of stalemate as the alternative, or even, very unlikely, victory. But either of those, with the risk or high likelihood of enormous loss of life, almost without limit. And I say that because of my knowledge of the nuclear plans. The risk both sides are taking of a possible nuclear war now, disastrous nuclear war, even if it remained somewhat limited, still disastrous. The possibility of the ultimate catastrophe of nuclear winter is consciously being preserved, not reduced, if anything increased by the actions of each side, could be worse. They could be at this moment uh, or tomorrow uh, attacking uh, each side, Poland, Russia, NATO, uh, tactical nuclear weapons are definitely a possibility, each of which raises still higher to a very high point the possibility of all-out war between the U.S. and Russia.